If you search Eric Clapton, the world's greatest guitarist, on YouTube, you may well come across him performing as a clown in full makeup without a guitar in sight. My name is Thomas Black. I work in the music business. And I came across this clip whilst researching Eric Clapton for an album project I was working on a number of years ago. It turns out this footage was from a charity circus held in Straffen House in Kildare in 1975. Step right up, gentlemen, ladies too. It was called Circassia. RTE made an hour-long film of it. It was fascinating, bizarre and charming in equal measure. John McColgan, the man who gave the word river dance, directed the film for RTE. The masquerade. There was no rehearsal. It was all sort of improvised, really. They made it up as they went along. There was a lot of custard pie activities. The other performers were no ordinary clowns either. They were some of Hollywood's biggest stars. Sean and Judy in a gallant show of acrobatics. They were people like Sean Connery, Shirley MacLaine and Burgess Meredith. They ran Goslings and Emma Stone's other day. And there was a, a horse that Sean Connery jumped on. But just to be in the middle of all these Hollywood stars in a Duffy Circus tent in the middle of the country, extraordinary. The film director, John Houston is ringmaster and the tent is teeming with A-list film stars, giddy with excitement as they smash custard pies into each other's faces. Oh, and did I mention Mick Jagger, the Chieftains and Christy Brown? Yes, they were all in attendance too. You get the picture. It all happened in what is now the K-Club. Back then, Straffen House was owned by a man called Kevin McClory. Kevin McClory, fascinating man to watch. You could tell by his behaviour on the day that he was a guy who was used to getting his own way, used to getting things done. Where is Kevin McClory? Kevin was so excited. He was like a child back at the circus again. Everybody knew who Kevin McClory was. Kevin, you organised all the clowns. Thank you. You put on a wonderful show. Kevin McClory had managed to bag all these world-famous stars because he was charming, rich and a very persuasive film producer of one of the biggest James Bond movies. So he certainly was a larger-than-life character. Kevin McClory was a flamboyant man with expensive tastes, a sense of humour and an appetite for practical jokes. He loved Concord, he loved his first-class travel and travelling was his thing and new adventures and stuff like that. That's Morgan Fulham, a family friend of the McClory's and also a lawyer who acted on behalf of the family. I've talked to a few people who said he had a, an ambition that would chill you at times. He died in 2006. He loved adventure, travel, animals, diving and the underwater world. He worked on some of the biggest films in cinema in the 50s and 60s. And among the many films that he worked on... James Bond is in operation. Perhaps the one that would come to most define his life, for better or worse was the 1965 James Bond film, Thunderball. Thunderball! The massively successful Thunderball would bring Kevin great wealth, but also great heartache. Because of Thunderball, Kevin would spend much of his life fighting the might of Hollywood for the very valuable screen rights to a legend that he had helped to create. 007. 
Bond. James Bond. In 1986, Kevin appeared on Saturday Live on RTE television. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Kevin McClory. Publisher and socialite, Noelle Campbell Sharp presented. Kevin, Hi. will you have some champagne? No, no, no. Thank you you promised a jack. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Kevin McClory came from a theatrical background. There had been actors in the family for generations. Where were you born? Down the road. <laughs> I had lunch in Delirte. <laughs> By the way, he took over a restaurant today, actually, when he had lunch <laughs> in Dunleary. Kevin acquired his cultivated accent while attending the best schools in the UK, courtesy of his wealthy grandparents. But school was a challenge for Kevin. I happen to be dyslectic. I've never said this publicly, but because of that, I left school at 15 because I couldn't get on it. We all fell in love with him, actually. Sylvan Whittingham knew Kevin in the 60s, when her father was working with him on a certain screenplay. I mean, he turned out to be an absolute rotter, but for, for, as far as my father was concerned. But I'm still very fond of him. He was a very charming, good-looking Irishman with big blue eyes and a rather endearing stammer. But the reason for the stammer was less endearing. During the war, 16-year-old Kevin got a job as a radio operator for the Norwegian Merchant Navy. You came back to our, you were torpedoed, you were on a ship. Yes, three torpedoes, 800 miles out of the Atlantic. I'd always been very cocky. I didn't ever believe it happened to me, but it did. They were picked up after 14 days. They endured terrible conditions. They started drinking seawater and hallucinating and losing their mind. And people had died. We were picked up about 80 miles off Kerry, but we're in pretty sorry in what, state. What condition were you? Badly cold. What well, condition were Badly frostbitten. We couldn't yeah. get out of the boat. I think there's no doubt that they all thought they were going to die. I have this idea that at some point in those 14 days when it looked like all was lost, something changed in Kevin and he had a, an attitude towards life that was... I'm not sure how I would describe it, but he wasn't going to waste a day and he was going to do what he wanted to do, and he, he had a drive that, that never left him. When Kevin was rescued from the sea, he'd completely lost the ability to speak as a result of the shock. He recovered, but was left with a lifelong speech impediment. That stammer that would put an end to any acting ambitions he may have had. It would have been the most natural thing in the world for me to be an actor, and that is really what I wanted to be. But I decided, uh, you know, that was just tough luck, I suppose. And I go on the other side of the business, and I'm very g g glad about that. I started to work at Sh Shepperton. Kevin got a job at Shepperton Film Studios as a boom swinger, holding the microphone in front of the actors. It was a lowly position, but suited Kevin's needs perfectly. The reason he wanted to be a boom swinger was because he was close to the director and you got to see what was happening. But they started referring to him as the Irish ambassador because he was just... So charming. In the intervening years before this, he had been mining for 10 somewhere in Africa. And he came back from Africa with a, a monkey that used to sit on his shoulder. Like, that, that was very typically Kevin. And while he was charming, he was purposeful. And he knew what he wanted, and he achieved it. And what he wanted was to be one of the best film producers around. He landed jobs in some of the era's biggest movies in some of the most exotic locations in the world the filming of African Queen with legendary director John Houston took place in the Congo. They realised when they landed in the Congo that they couldn't take the sound equipment along the roads because they were too dangerous. 
So Kevin volunteered to take it in the river. Rivers in the Congo are dangerous enough, so he was given a rifle, he had a local guide and two bottles of whiskey and the sound equipment. And he managed to make it, so when he pulled up, Houston came running down to whatever makeshift dock they had and said, Kevin McClory, I'm delighted to meet you. And they opened the bottle of whiskey there and then and drank it and they were friends forever at that point. We made it! That was a very tough location in Africa. It was probably the happiest film I ever worked on. He was truly fearless at that stage in his life. After that, Kevin worked for Houston on Moby Dick in Yall, County Cork, where he again endeared himself with his heroics. They had this enormous whale that was obviously Moby Dick, and a storm came up, and the chain broke loose, and the whale started drifting out in the storm. And Kevin, who was a skin diver, was very into the underwater world. So he jumped in to the choppy North Atlantic, climbed onto the um, whale, tied a rope to it and saved it and the production. So it became a bit of a, a hero on the set. It was the mid-50s, Kevin was still in his 20s and film directors were now taking notice of him and he had now climbed the ladder to be assistant director. John Cork is a world-renowned film expert specialising in all things Bond. He's the guy who, when France shuts down all the production on around the world in 80 days, who gets the beautiful balloon shots all over France at the beginning of that film. He's that guy. And that's the key right there to understanding Kevin, is you want him on your team. Kevin used to say that he was always the fastest-moving person on set. He was always doing more than everybody else. And he became probably the most in-demand young producer, filmmaker at the time. Kevin also romantically shot for the stars. He was going out with Elizabeth Taylor. She wanted to marry Kevin and move to the west of Ireland and live in a cottage. It was a lively relationship that the two of them had. He is thinking they're going to get married. Elizabeth left Kevin for film director Mike Todd, who directed Around the World in 80 Days. Michael Todd kept Kevin away from Elizabeth Taylor. He was able to move in on her and win her heart as this much more successful, gregarious guy. Michael Todd stole Elizabeth Taylor from Kevin McClory, and Kevin felt burned. Kevin retreated to the Bahamas, where he started dreaming about an ambitious project, an underwater film, as he later recalled in a radio interview. Because after around the world in 80 days, I was tired. I took a holiday in the Bahamas and I started going underwater and I started seeing the potential. Underwater was very vivid. I mean, I didn't think anyone's lived until they lined in the Bahamas on their back with an aqualung and watched the sun set. So I had thought about making a big production underwater. In the late 50s, he came back from the Bahamas and planned to direct an arty film he'd written, The Boy on the Bridge. In the Bahamas, he had met a wealthy playboy keen to get into the film business called Ivor Bryce. Ivor Bryce became enchanted, as numerous people had over the years, with a young filmmaker named Kevin McClory. Based on Kevin's achievements, Bryce bankrolled Kevin's directing debut. Through Ivor, Kevin was about to make the most important connection of his life. Ivor Bryce had a friend, an author called Ian Fleming, who had written seven novels about a secret agent called... James Bond. 
He's a sort of fictional mixture of commandos and secret service agents that I met during the war. Here's Ian Fleming appearing a few years later on BBC's Desert Island Discs. But of course, entirely fictionalised. Yes, is there much I, of you in it? I hope not. I mean, <laughs> people do connect me with James Bond simply because I happen to like scrambled eggs and short-sleeved shirts, but uh, I certainly haven't got his guts nor his uh, very lively appetite. The James Bond that Fleming invented in the 50s wasn't the Bond we know today. My name is Bond. James Bond. Is there something I can do for you? Yes, a matter of fact, there is. There is something I'd like you to get off your chest. <gasps> the literary James Bond of the Fleming books wore a bowler hat and a pinstripe suit. He was a cold, austere character, driving an old Bentley with no friends, never mind a sense of humour. Fleming had been trying to sell his books to the studios and he wasn't getting anywhere with them at all. Fleming wouldn't have had a whole lot of connections in the film industry, whereas Kevin knew everybody. Ivor Bryce put his old pal, Ian Fleming, in touch with Kevin McClory. The talk was that he would direct the first James Bond film. Kevin McClory, you know, everybody had a lot of faith in him because he had worked on these huge films. And he was directing Boy in the Bridge with Ivor Bryce's producing money when everybody thought this was going to be a spectacular success. And so in 1958, 32-year-old Kevin met with Ian Fleming at Claridge's in London to talk about a secret agent. I met Fleming, Ian Fleming, one of the most interesting people I've ever, ever met. He had written eight n novels, but not one of them had been made as a film. And it intrigued me. Fleming said, Kevin, these are the books. You can turn one into a film. There's nobody I'd rather do it than you. He said, would I be interested in making a James Bond film? I said, I don't know. I hadn't read his books. He gave me eight books. I read them, and I could see why they hadn't been made as films. And so Kevin said he didn't want to do any of the books. He, they were filled with sadism. It was too unpalatable at the time. In the 1950s, Fleming's books were considered sadistic and violent, as he discussed on Desert Island Discs. Your torture scenes are pretty beastly in some of the books. Well, I think the old days of the hero getting a crack over the head with a cricket stump have rather gone out. I mean, we all have become considerably wiser since the last war. All history is sex and violence. This particular torture scene that ended up in a much later film... That was the, the scene that Kevin said, you know, we can't have that in a film. That's why they're saying no. You are a funny man, Mr Bond. But after Kevin read the books, he could see there was something that could work. So I said to him, look, every book you've written is superb, but every book will have to be rewritten for the screen. So I said, well, the most visual element in the books was the character James Bond. Every page that came to, he leapt out to me. And I said, let's put him in the Bahamas. Opulent place. In 1959, there was people who couldn't just get on a plane easily. Palm trees. Wealthy men with yachts. Ahoy there! Our motor's conked out. You wouldn't be going anywhere near Coral Harbour, would you? I wasn't, but I could. Well, uh, I have a very important appointment. Kevin said, look, I don't want to do any of the books, but this character is incredible. So I suggest that we team up together and we remodel, rewrite the character specifically for the screen. 
Can I do something for you, Mr. Bond? Uh, just a drink. A martini, shaken, not stirred. In 1958, Kevin set to work on the new Bond project. Using money from the Fleming Bryce camp, Kevin McClory hired English screenwriter Jack Whittingham, then one of the best in the business, to help develop a new story worthy of a modern secret agent. I was 15 when this all started. I was away at boarding school. Here's Sylvan Whittingham again, daughter of Jack Whittingham, who began working with Kevin on the new script. My father used to send me postcards from very glamorous, from Nassau in the Bahamas, from, from the Rainbow Room in New York. Kevin and my father took on the phone for hours, get together in London, in the Bahamas. Fleming would join them occasionally. He didn't have a lot of input. Uh, he had attempted to write the film himself, and uh, it was abandoned. He's, he had long monologues about a gentleman in a bowler hat driving a Bentley <laughs> with a rolled-up umbrella. But it was Kevin that kept the whole thing, in, initiated it. And Fleming had said that, you know, he'd had enough. His wife hated him writing these books. She thought they were trash. He wanted to go travelling. Uh, he, he'd had enough of it, really. So he let my father take over and use his character. Between them, Kevin and Jack created a brand new story. That story was Thunderball, a story that featured an evil organization called Spectre. I regret to inform you all of the death of Spectre number six. Colonel Jacques Bouvard was killed by an unknown assassin. His services will be greatly missed. Headed up by a terrible villain, Blofeld, who would sit stroking his fluffy white cat while dispatching evil orders to hold the world to ransom. My dear Prime Minister, two atomic bombs are now in the possession of Spectre. James Bond would be transformed to a suave and witty hero. Well, I'm truly sorry to have to dash off like this, but uh, there's been a bit of a flap at the office. What kind of work do you do, anyway? Oh, I uh, travel, a sort of uh, licensed troubleshooter. <laughs> and so the Bond project seemed to be up and running, and Kevin was busily talking to film studios and actors about getting what was to be the first Bond film Thunderball made. However, little did he and Jack know the plans were being made over in the Fleming camp to sideline them. In 1959, The Boy on the Bridge, that first film that Kevin had been directing with Ivor Bryce's money came out, but it was not a success at all. And Bryce and Fleming lost faith in Kevin being somebody who could deliver on the first Bond film. The film is savaged by critics. This film does not end up winning over audiences. Ian was worried that his friend Ivor Bryce was going to lose a lot of money on this project. Kevin wanted to do a very expensive Bond project. And the concept was, Kevin can't direct this movie, which is how he had originally been attached. They're trying to, to move out of the Kevin McClory business. The way that Fleming got rid of Kevin was just to bring out a book called Thunderball, as if he'd written it, and just ignore Kevin and hope he'd go away. Fleming was under pressure to write a new Bond book every year a process he later said he found really difficult. Do you look forward to writing a new one every year? Well, I don't really, unless I've got it firmly fixed in my mind, and this is a very bad period for me this time of the year because I'm trying to work out the next adventure of James Bond, which has got to be written in January and February, and I'm always rather in despair, thinking I'm not going to have enough book to write. Fleming said to Kevin, and this is in writing, you know, I haven't got a single idea in my head. And he was kind of running out of steam, and he had a deadline coming up. So that's why he submitted Thunderball as his own work. Two years after the screenplay had started, 
Fleming had a book ready to be published, but the Thunderball novel included large extracts of the film script and it didn't credit Kevin McClory or Jack Whittingham. Ian Fleming is preparing for the novel to be published and he knows that Kevin very well may sue. He goes to his lawyer in, in London and he says, I think I may just get sued about this book I just wrote and I'm not sure what to do about it. You know, the lawyer says, okay, well, first thing you want to do is you want to get the rights tied up for the James Bond books because Kevin can't get something that you don't own. So we need to find you a producer who will hold the rights to the James Bond books. And I have a client who may be that guy. And that's how he puts Harry Saltzman and Ian Fleming in touch. So Fleming hands over the Bond rights to Harry Saltzman. And then Cubby Broccoli walks into his office and says, I want to do the Bond films. I hear you've got them. Working with Cubby, they're able to set the deal up with United Artists. The only reason that deal is able to come to pass is because Ian Fleming was worried Kevin was going to sue for all the film rights to James Bond, something he later does try to do. Kevin only found out about it, I think, when it had already been printed. They, Kevin sought an injunction, and they, I think they said, look, it's, it's too far. We'll, every future edition will have to be amended. Everyone loves Thunderball. It breaks the sales record for Bond hardbacks in the United States. There's a huge amount of, of push to try to publicize Fleming as a Bond author at this point. Excitement about the potential for a Bond film was now building. Film producers Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman now had the option on Ian Fleming's books for the screen and wanted Thunderball to be the first Bond movie. But with Kevin now threatening to sue over Thunderball, they decided to go with Dr. No as the first movie in 1962. They rewrote Dr. No using this new template. It's pretty clear, just have to read the books and watch the film. <laughs> the Bond bandwagon was up and running. I admire your luck, Mr... Bond. James Bond. Sean Connery was cast as the impossibly cool secret agent. Mr. Bond, I suppose you wouldn't care to um, raise the limit? I have no objection. But the Bond of Dr. No was a revamped Bond of Whittingham and Kevin's imagination. Here's Jack's daughter, Sylvan. Now, they had this rather suave, charming, tongue-in-cheek sense of humour, James Bond, that wasn't in the first seven books. Tell me, you always dress this way for golf. I changed into something more comfortable. Oh, I hope I did the right thing. Well, you did the right thing. The one-liners and, and the charm and all of that, it's hard to see that that didn't come from Kevin and, and Jackie. Kevin was an incredibly charming, endearing, engaging, very smooth, very handsome, very worldly guy, you know, and I think he brought a lot of that to, to Bond. I have to leave immediately. Oh, that's too bad. Just as things were getting interesting again. The year after Dr. No came out, Kevin decided to pursue the Thunderbolt case in court. The top litigation lawyer of the time, Peter Carter Rook, was brought in. Although he may not have known what he was taking on when he agreed to represent Kevin. Peter Carter Rook, the lawyer, he flew out to, the, to Nassau to meet with Kevin with a briefcase full of papers. Peter was a frightfully British gent in a pinstripe suit and immaculate manners. Another charming man. And um, 
Kevin met him at the airport in this bright red open car and drove him about two miles and then straight into Nassau Harbour. It was this amphibious car. That was typical of Kevin. It's time we said goodbye to an uninvited guest. Fleming had taken a risk writing Thunderball the novel, but there's a sense that he thought he might get away with it. I feel that Bryson Fleming's play was that Kevin wouldn't A, be able to afford the court case or wouldn't have the interest in pursuing it, wouldn't have a chance of success. So I think they didn't think he would bring it to that point. This is gold, Mr. Bond. Like Connery said many years later, Fleming had all these connections, naval intelligence, Eton and all this stuff, and... And here was an Irish man in an English court. Didn't have a chance, but never underestimate Kevin McClory. Kevin, Kevin didn't care. He just went for it. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. 1963 was also the year that Kevin got married to a very wealthy heiress called Bo Segrist. Bo already had a daughter, and the two of them had three children together. Bo was famous for her beauty and, you know, followed by the press and would have been in, in the public eye to quite a degree. With the backing of Bobo Segrist, his wife, Kevin was able to sue, take Fleming to court, which he would never have been able to do. Fleming was far too powerful than all his lawyers. It was a long, long case. At first, they, they jointly sued Fleming. They sued him for um, basically stealing their story and giving them no acknowledgement. As the costs started to mount, Jack Whittingham couldn't afford to stay in the game, but he backed Kevin up in evidence. And my father loyally supported him. Jack had planned to sue Fleming at a later date if Kevin won the case. This is the original book that Fleming brought out, the first edition of Thunderball, with, as you can see, no credits for my father. And this book was Peter Carteract's copy, which was used in the court case. You can see the... Notations. Numbers on it. It says at the back here, 150 pages out of 254 substantially filmed story. You see, look, then there's things where it says this only appears in the Whittingham script. You know, it's all come from the script, you see, look, pages and pages of it. Mm -hmm. Spectre. Kevin's taken credit for that. It wasn't in any of the first seven books, Spectre. That was invented for Thunderball. I think it was day eight of the trial, it became very clear to everybody in the courtroom that Fleming and Bryce had no case whatsoever. So they agreed a settlement that was heavily in Kevin's favour, which meant that all books from then on and any film using Thunderball or Thunderball material would, would have to say that it was jointly written by Fleming Whittingham and Kevin. And Kevin got all of the rights in Thunderball. The 1963 court case made headlines around the world. As well as the rights, Kevin demanded his legal expenses to be paid. He got £52,500, about half a million pounds in today's money. This was a huge amount of money. He demanded this in cash delivered to him in a suitcase. And he literally takes the suitcase filled with cash. Once he gets it, he and Bobo, his wife, go straight to the airport and fly to Ireland. And he never pays his lawyer. Not only did the lawyer not get paid, but Jack Whittingham also got nothing financially from the settlement. A lot of people were crushed by this court case. A lot of people. He was very crushed by Kevin's treatment of him. The next year, in August 1964, Ian Fleming died of a heart attack. 
he was already a very, very sick man. He already had a drink problem. His doctor had limited him to one drink, one shot a day. He'd gone to great lengths to find out what was the strongest drink in the world, so he could have one shot of that. And I think it was green chartreuse. My father was the same. They smoked and they drank heavily and they had bad hearts. Hey, presto. And then you add all the stress of his wonderful career suddenly turning into this accusation of being a plagiarist and what he had to go through against Kevin and my father. It didn't help. Fleming's death meant that Jack didn't get to sue Fleming himself. And Jack Whittingham would become the forgotten man in the Bond story. With Dr No in 62, Sean Connery was on his way to becoming one of the biggest film stars in the world, followed by From Russia With Love in 63 and then the even more successful Goldfinger in 64. And Kevin was waiting in the wings of Thunderball. Kevin's problem now, once he'd won the rights to Thunderball, was how was he going to produce it? Because three other movies had come out while the court case was going on. They had the, the gun scene at the beginning where he shoots and you see the blood coming down and the underwater swimmers, the James Bond theme. And they had all sorts of gimmicks going for them that Kevin didn't own. So for him to have made a separate Thunderball, you know, it wouldn't have been the same, would it? So against his better will, he went into joint production with Swartzman and Broccoli. And so you can see on here it says... Um, it's just as Broccoli and Swordsman present Sean Connery and Ian Fleming's Thunderball based on the original story, produced by Kevin McClory, you see. So he got yeah. the production credit for that, whereas obviously in all the others, <clears throat> it was Swordsman and Broccoli. So that was the deal. Film producers, Saltzman and Broccoli, who had made all the Bond movies, now had a firm grip on the 007 franchise. I think it was 1965 in Dublin Airport when Kevin and Broccoli were trying to do a deal on, on the Thunderball rights and Broccoli wanted to own it outright. And uh, Broccoli's argument was, sure, nobody's going to be interested in Bond in the future. And Kevin said, I'll give you a 10-year license then. Because if, if no one's going to be interested, what is it to you? And he did give him the 10-year license and Kevin always knew that Bond would stick around, that that character was unique. In order to do a deal with Broccoli and Saltzman, Kevin didn't object to Jack Winningham being kept on the outside for the making of Thunderball. Kevin just abandoned him. Kevin just went off. Because my father's now living in Malta, so and communication wasn't like it is now, but there were phones. In March 1965, the Thunderball production of 102 actors and crew arrived at the Bahamas with the biggest bought movie budget to date of $5.5 million. It was seven times the budget of the first movie in the series, Dr. No. Unprecedented underwater filming would finally bring Kevin's long-held ambitions to the screen on a grand scale. It was a feat of production. And if you think that back in the 50s, Kevin had this idea of bringing cameras underwater and exposing this world that Kevin spent so much of his life in and had such a grow for, just being transported to a world that cinema goers had never seen before. Look, look, here's the invitation to the premiere at Piccadilly Circus. The Thunderball, dress circle, row D. 25 guineas. 25 guineas. Table plan. McClory, Kevin McClory. Mm -hmm. You've got 12 guests. You can imagine every, the whole world wanted to go. What, a, what an evening that must have been. My father learned that he didn't have the actual screenwriting credit of Thunderball when he went to see the movie. He was bitterly disappointed. 
It was the biggest film in the world, without doubt. It was an enormous event. The public's appetite for all things Bond was insatiable. And cinemas throughout the world opened 24 hours. It earned an astonishing $147 million, equating to $1 billion today, making it the biggest grossing Bond movie of all time, right up until Skyfall in 2012. Thunderball is as classic Bond as you can get. What sharp little eyes you've got. Wait till you get to my teeth. At the age of 42, Kevin McClory had hit the jackpot, thanks to Thunderball and the James Bond character he had helped to create. Kevin was now one of the richest men in Ireland. Overnight, Kevin you know, became fabulously wealthy and world famous. Literally, the money comes in from Thunderball, whether it was a DVD sale or a television sale or whatever, the profit money on that after the studio expenses, 20% of that money went over to Kevin. He must have made an absolute fortune, for which he gave my father nothing from. He went off without even telling him he'd done a deal with Sorts and Broccoli. So we were very aggrieved about that. But that's Kevin. I'm afraid that's Kevin. That's just the way he operated without thinking of other people. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty black and white, Sylvan. <laughs> You'll hear the same story. Kevin behaved dreadfully towards other people, but we still love him. <laughs> Thunderball screenwriter Jack Whittingham died in 1972. There's a sense that Kevin's creative side got parked in those years after the Thunderball settlement. Sure, he had loads of money, but it meant he was no longer the guy with something to prove. He had that flow of cash. It took the pressure off from trying to scramble to make it. He was no longer the guy who was going to have to dive off the back of the boat and try to save the whale in Moby Dick. And he was never able to really pull it together and get other things going in a big, big way. And there's no, there's no shame in that, but, you know, it's just the case. In 1973, Kevin bought the Straffen House estate in County Kildare. He lived between two great places. He had a fabulous place on Paradise Island in the Bahamas, and then he had Straffen House. He really turned Straffen into a bit of a paradise to grow up in. You know, there are lots of animals, great grounds, and uh, the, the stories around Straffen are incredible, like this very large pig that he was very fond of, and he would uh, take it to Mass on Sunday and tie it up outside and then walk it home. You know, he was, uh, he was a true character, but animals were a huge part of his uh, life. He was a real animal lover. Come and see a sad man play a clown. And it was in those intervening years that he decided to put on a circus in his back garden. I started reading people I'd worked with, friends, I said, we'd like to be clowns. And all of a sudden they were saying, yes, yes. Yes. Kevin called up his old friend, John Houston. He said, oh, oh yes, kid, you like me being a clown. I said, no, 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 not a clown. I'd like you to be the ring master. All right, I'll come and be a clown. I said, the ring master. All right, I can hear you. I'll be the ring master. All right, kid, you just count on me. I'll come over. When is it? The charity circus was one of many wild parties held at Straffen. I don't think it was unusual for him to start a party in the Bahamas and end it in Straffan. Parties that just went on for days and days. Kevin loved parties and was terrific host of parties. I mean, he really loved partying and he was good at it. He definitely enjoyed his wealth. 
1976, the ten-year licence that Kevin had given Broccoli was up and he was planning on getting back in the Bond game. He remained close friends with Broccoli and they were at dinner and uh, Broccoli said, so Kevin, <laughs> what are you planning on doing next? And Kevin said, I'm, I'm writing a Bond film. And Broccoli was taken aback and said, well, you have no rights to make Bond films, Kevin. And Kevin reminded him that he'd given him a licence, which Broccoli hadn't recalled or perhaps chose not to recall. And uh, in that moment, their decades-long friendship ended. And so began many more years of court cases as Kevin battled to try to produce another Bond film. In 78, the Bond Trust started proceedings against Kevin that would go on for years and prevent him from making anything new until 1983, when he finally managed to get another one over the line. Never say never again. Never, never say never again. The safest one they could make was a re remake of Thunderball, which is why Never Say Never Again is essentially a remake of Thunderball. And Almost 10 years after he last played the part, Kevin persuaded Sean Connery to come out of retirement for one more outing as James Bond. Connery appeared on the NBC Today show at the time. Are you surprised to find yourself back here playing James, James Bond? Bond? Yes, I am. Having said, you know, never again, as it were, I was approached by Kevin McClory. He had the rights after 10 years to uh, remake the Thunderball. But there was a strange scenario where Connery was filming Never Say Never Again. Hand roll! Whilst across town, Roger Moore was shooting Octopussy in a Broccoli and Salzmoor production. Action shot! Bizarrely, the two films came out that year and went head-to-head -head in the cinema. Sean Connery is James Bond. Never Say Never Again didn't do particularly well. Never Say Never Again. I've often thought to myself, why on earth wasn't he just grateful with Thunderbolt? All the money coming in from that must have been a fortune. He could have funded his own films. My name's Bond. Oh, you're Mr Bond. I believe I'm having you in half an hour. Oh, splendid. You're on my mind. He had an absolute obsession about having missed out on the James Bond movie train. And he was like a dog with a bone. He never let it go. He sued until the day he died. I think Kevin died practically penniless. Then he'd be living at the uh, Shelburne Hotel in Dublin. He phoned me from there a couple of times. Uh, and, and, and very flamboyant. He, you know, he was a great spender. So they, he never had any money. That's why he never paid Peter. That's why there's a trail of debts that he left. And that's why he fell out with a lot of people. When things really got difficult between Kevin and the Broccolis and MGM, you don't see Spectre anymore because that was one thing they knew they they couldn't do. I don't think at any point Kevin planned to spend his entire life on this one piece of intellectual property. I often wonder, would he have been better off if he just stopped and moved on? But at a certain point when you're that invested in it, you can't give up on it. And also it began to define him. You know, he was Kevin McClory, the guy who's battling for his James Bond rights. And, you know, you can see the toll that took on him. But when you're in a multi-million dollar court case every few years, it's it, an enormous psychological pressure. Like he wanted to produce things. He wanted to bring his imagination to life. And it's, there's a certain sadness that it took too much of his life. It was unfair, but I don't think he could have done it any other way. 
Okay, Sylvan, and one more question for you. Kevin McClory, hero or villain, Bond or Blofeld? Oh, my goodness. I, can I have time to think about that one? Hero or villain? Well, I would say both. <laughs> I'm afraid both. I couldn't categorise him as a total villain because although he did some... Well, he was very, very unkind to my father and thoughtless. But, as I say, I don't hate him. I've still got fond memories of Kevin. It's just how he was. So he's not a complete villain, although hero... He was, yeah, he was a hero in that he was brave enough to take all this on and to keep fighting and to persevere and win the court case. That made him brave and a hero. So he was both. He is a complicated, fascinating man. I met him one time. He couldn't have been nicer to me. I, you know, was he honest? No. Did he have integrity? Of a certain type, yes. Was he fearless? Absolutely. Did he have his weaknesses? Tremendously. And in that sense, he's everything that the Bond films are not. He is complex and many shades of gray, not the black and white of the hero and the villain. Kevin remarried in 1977. He married Elizabeth O'Brien, daughter of famous horse trainer Vincent and they had one son together. In 2006, after 82 colourful years, Kevin passed away in a Dublin nursing home. I can confirm that Kevin McClory had a Viking funeral. I was there and uh, he had it out by uh, Moran's in the Weir, a famous oyster restaurant, which is Kevin's favourite restaurant in Galway. And they had a beautiful longboat. It had Kevin's ashes in it and a little figure that went in the front, little Kevin figure that I think his granddaughter may have made. And as traditional in Viking funerals, as dusk fell, all the family gathered around and the Viking ship was sent off and then set alight and drifted off out towards the Atlantic. Oysters and pints. Yeah, it was a fitting send-off for a man who uh, lived his life uh, like a torch in flame. It was quite a powerful moment, actually, the sun to set on a life like that as, uh, as the longboat in flames heads out towards the sea. Kevin McClory kept fighting until the end for recognition of his role as a key player in the birth of the screen James Bond. He was up against giants of Hollywood, the Broccoli Empire and the most powerful film studios. In 2013, Kevin's family finally brought the 50-year saga to a close when they handed all of the Thunderball rights back to the Hollywood studios for an undisclosed sum of money. I came here to kill you. It meant that James Bond's nemesis, that evil organisation Spectre, and the ultimate Bond baddie Blofeld could finally come out of the shadows with the release of the film Spectre in 2015. This organisation... Do you know what it's called? Its name is Spectre. Kevin McClory didn't live his life in the shadows, and though so many of the people involved in the creation of a screen legend have now passed on, and after so many court cases and personal fallouts, the one that endures is part of Kevin's legacy. 007, Bond, James Bond. Bond.